welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 61st episode, I'll be talking to comics artist, martial artist, stuntman and actor Randall Trang about Drunken Master, although it quickly becomes a conversation just about Jackie Chan. Along the way, we discuss growing up in Boston's shrinking Chinatown, the importance of Chirrut Imwe, and what it means to idolize a pacifist martial arts hero. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. Editor's note before we get started, Randall and I had what may be the worst ever Skype connection on the planet. We even switched to Discord, but it didn't help. I moved rooms around the house, it didn't help. So when the signal is there, it's actually relatively clear, but there are going to be minutes where the middle of a sentence just drops out. I did my best to patch it together so it still makes sense, but you will have the occasional bit that's just missing, so I apologize for that. But frankly, Randall was too good of a guest for me to scrap the entire thing and do it again, so I present it here complete with bumps in the road. We join this conversation already in progress. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Hi, I am a comics writer and artist. I am the creator of Rogue, which is an all-ages comic. Though I know you have a lot of comics creators on here, so I don't know if that makes me unique and special snowflake. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure you don't also have someone that is also an actor slash stuntman. That's what I do here in the wonderful city of New York, which is where I'm recording this from. Yeah, I've been working as an, an actor in Summit for a little over a year now. My most notable credits were on Law & Order SVU, Iron Fist, and there's an upcoming Spielberg movie called The Papers that I was just in. So yeah, lots of fun stuff. Oh, I also practice and teach martial arts, which is kind of how I got into the stunt business. But yeah, that's me. I think I saw you teach Taekwondo, right? Oh, and I run a school in Rhode Island or help run a school in Rhode Island with my master, Master Park. It's called Master Park's Champion Taekwondo Center. That's in East Providence, Rhode Island, which is close to where I went to school. So technically, to most of my students, they don't know me as Randall at all. They know me as Master Trang. That's kind of like my other alter ego, I guess. (laughs) It's nice nice to have to like write and draw superhero comics, but also kind of have an alter ego. I think it's it's good for my brand. And I can imagine that when you're in your, you know, Master Trang persona, since I can't, can't come up with another way to say it, you know, you speak differently, <laughs> you move differently, you've got authority to you. Yeah. And like some of it bleeds over, of course, like I try to have that that same confidence in my, my day-to-day life. But it, yeah, it, there is a distinct difference because it, I kind of have that effect. Streets and I pass by a student, they don't recognize me. <laughs> happened on dozens of occasions where I'll actually stop them and they will just stare at me blankly like who's this person that stopped me <laughs> and then like a second who I am and yeah be very embarrassed that they didn't recognize me <laughs> with just like my street clothes and glasses and mm. I don't teach with glasses on all that stuff about people making fun of like you know the whole Superman Clark cast that's just Superman with glasses I'm going to tell you firsthand it works and hey as someone who watches wrestling I can tell you that I have seen Adrian Neville in the background of certain shots with his hair up and with his glasses on just like reading a book or looking at an ipad or something and have to pause the tv and go wait a minute 
Yeah, it's, it's actually really funny. We uh, just saw, I just came back from uh, NXT TakeOver Brooklyn, and he was there in the audience. But when the camera came on, Neville, he was in his regular street clothes, and he dressed like a hipster. Like, he has, like, his button-up collar, the glasses, and he has his hair pulled back in a ponytail. Doesn't look at all like the King Neville character that he plays on TV. Mm-hmm. But when the camera focused on him, he decided to kind of like be stone-faced like King Neville. But it just looked really silly because he, he was dressed like regular old Neville with, with his bookish glasses back hair. And looks really neat and nerdy. But he's trying to convey this like Game of Thrones-like character. Yeah, it's it's really... <laughs> yeah, I, I'm see, now I'm just picturing him like practicing that voice in the mirror and just being like, <laughs> you know, like sitting there and just being normal and then like he's throwing the switch and he's like, yes, peasants. <laughs> yeah I, I definitely like um there there are moments and i'm guessing this will in my regular life everyday life once i become a parent i've had a few times where i've had to use kind of like my you know my teacher voice outside of the classroom i've had friends of mine that i hang out with that i also teach in taekwondo i bust that out yeah we'll be yeah, like having dinner you know everybody will be making too much noise or being very rude in a public space and i'll just turn to everyone and just say guys yeah i think i just lost you there I heard, I heard the word guys, and clearly you intimidated this thing too much. Because <laughs> you just disappeared. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just, I, I think uh, there was a hiccup with my connection there. Even Discord was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, Randall, I heard you on Chris Haley's podcast, and you might notice I nicked his tagline. I've even sent him an email about that, and he, he seems to be okay with it, so it seems to be all right. But, Gimmick infringement. Yeah, I know. I, I actually, I, I sent him an email like the third time I used it. I'm like, I'm using this. Is that okay? Because I kind of, I toss up every once in a while. I used to, used to say, in the words of Chris Haley, a beautiful and unique snowflake. But he then didn't write back, so I presume it was okay. So, uh, yeah. I'll talk for the podcast listeners here. Lucas and I were just talking about weird sleep schedules. Mm-hmm. And if you want to talk about weird sleep schedules, that's Chris Haley to a T. <laughs> so you probably caught him while he was sleeping. That's fair. When, and that's why he didn't respond. <laughs> it's funny because I already knew you through Ajax and stuff when you were on there. Mm-hmm. And then when you were on Chris Haley's podcast, because at the time I was like, oh, you know, I'd love to have Randall on and we can talk about, you know, martial arts movies and stuff. And then you, you were on Chris Haley's podcast and you mentioned something about Philip Ree. And then from there, when mm-hmm. it's talking about best of the best, and I like nearly punched a wall because I'm like, son of a bitch, <laughs> I wanted to talk to Randall about best of the best because I love that movie. Did not say all I needed to say about best of the best on one podcast. <laughs> I will not be done even if we do the entire podcast about best of the best, which I promise you, listeners, we will not do. Because yeah, but I I totally could. <laughs> we don't want to burn that bridge with our listeners talking about Eric Roberts's ridge hand and how he doesn't quite know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a running joke amongst me and my students. That moment where they talk about the ridge hand. I think the quote was a, it's something like an uncommon or a unique technique that isn't used often. And a ridge hand is a kind of like a amongst Taekwondo practitioners of a certain ilk art is a very common move. But amongst traditional practitioners or Olympic fighters, the ridge hand is just like this technique. <laughs> Because you're striking down at something and in, in Taekwondo fighting, you're mostly just you're kicking at, at a person. At no point will you be striking down on them mm-hmm. with your hand. <laughs> You'll be mostly just kicking them. But yeah, best of the best, very, very important movie. Just like martial arts movies in general, I feel are a huge part of me growing up. And I think it's not like a um, in the direction where like I started doing martial arts and so I liked martial arts movies. It was very much like I was a kid. And Jackie Chan movies were all the rage. I watched a lot of Ninja Turtles and Power Rangers, and that made me want to be a martial artist. 
You see, folks, imitative behavior isn't always about blowing things up. You play Street Fighter enough times, you're going to want to learn how to throw an Adokin. <laughs> All right, well, let's start with the basics then. Whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, specifically in the Chinatown neighborhood, which is actually rare for folks my age. I don't know of much of that grew up in Chinatown. Chinatown is kind of a, it's a shrinking ghetto, I would say. It's kind of, it's not really a residential area for Chinese folks anymore in the Boston area. We moved out kind of and dispersed out into the suburbs of Boston and whatnot. But I did grow up in Chinatown. My grandma raised me. My parents were working a lot. My parents, I mean, my parents did. They were parents, but they were working all the time. Typical kind of immigrant parents working all hours of the day. They worked in restaurants a lot so that those hours were very long. They dropped me off at my, my grandma's house, which is dead smack in the middle of Chinatown. And she raised me and all of my cousins, which is, I have dozens of cousins and they all grew up under the same house. So a lot of my cousins and I grew up together and they're kind of like my siblings. I have an actual older brother and a younger sister that I trained with in the martial arts because we needed something to do after school. And we started at a young age, relatively, I think, I think seven years old when I started doing martial arts. Okay. And my brother was 10. It was the only extracurricular that we did. It was like after school, we went to Taekwondo and then we went home, did our homework and went to sleep and then repeat the next day. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a good childhood, I think. It was a lot of being raised around my culture. It's hard to do in America, especially with, we tend to get dispersed a lot. We, like I said, in Boston, they move out to the suburbs and you're not around a whole lot of other Chinese people often. So it's nice that I, I, I really enjoyed my childhood growing up in Chinatown. Yeah, and I'm looking here because I was in, as listeners will know, I took a trip to the U.S. in November of last year. And yeah, we spent a few days in Boston and just looking at it. And yeah, it's a remarkably small area on the map. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's this idea of this kind of shrinking area in the middle of the city. And it, and it is, it's smack dab in the middle of Boston. Yeah, it's prime real estate, really. It was protected for a while. We had a mayor, uh, Mayor Menino, who was mayor for, I think, like 19 years or something like that. And he was dead set on protecting Chinatown. He passed away recently and we have a new mayor. And now that we have this new mayor, Chinatown is really shrinking. Certain kind of landmarks of my childhood in Chinatown are, are slowly going away. Restaurants that my family ran that were in the city, in the city of, or in the neighborhood of Chinatown are slowly disappearing. You know, luxury condos are being built in its place because, you know, it is dead smack in the middle of Boston. It's not like we could have kept it for long. You know, sooner or later, they'll find out there's no reason for this to be a cultural kind of Chinese ghetto. It's it's prime real estate. So it's slowly disappearing. But um, I mean, I'm very lucky and I'm very glad to have grown up there during the time that I did. Growing up in Chinatown at your grandparents' place, running around with your cousins, you know, doing martial arts with, with your brother, what sort of kid were you? I was really quiet. I'm the middle child. I very much was like straight A student, didn't make a whole lot of noise. I, I mean, even according to my parents, they were just like, yeah, you never really said much as a kid. I was okay kind of just sitting in the corner and drawing. And that's like, I think, a really to be able to sit and focus on one thing for a very long time. And if you left me alone, I wouldn't cause any trouble. I'd just, you know, find a pen and then I'd grab one of the waitress's notepads that they would take orders down on and then just sit in the corner and just draw it. That's what I would do. I'd do that, play video games with my brother, watch wrestling on TV. If I was at the restaurant, which sometimes would happen if like grandma couldn't take us for that day or whatever, I'd sit in the corner of the restaurant and just draw. And this is something I've asked of a few people who kind of Talk about being artists very young. What sort of things were you drawing? Were you coming up with your own stuff? Were you emulating what you saw on TV? 
We like me constantly drawing Mortal Kombat characters in the corners of my of my notebooks <laughs> when I should have been studying. Yeah, I never let it interfere with my studying. That's like the one thing that like I think that it makes me a different artist than most. Everyone's just like, yeah, I was just constantly drawing in my notes and things like that, and I never did that. <laughs> I always separated. It. I drew somewhere else. Uh, I I did not like drawing on my notes. I didn't like drawing on like line paper. I always like drawing in a sketchbook, blank pad. I was always drawing Dragon Ball Z characters. Okay, huge Dragon Ball Z fan. Another one of those kind of like pieces of media that kind of got me into martial arts actually this is interesting in chinatown we got imported tapes from asia so we got dragon ball z as it was coming out in japan and they would be dubbed in chinese in all different dialects in mandarin and cantonese for kind of like the hong kong market we would get those tapes imported from hong kong to this little tape store in chinatown and my mom would go and rent her soaps her chinese soaps from this videotape rental store and she would get Sailor Moon for my sister for me and my brother to watch and there were at the time brand new episodes of Dragon Ball Z but to Americans they wouldn't see Dragon Ball Z until you know several years later but we watched it as it was coming out and I, I always thought that was really cool that I had like my own little thing that no one else at school watched and I got like my cousins and I got really into Dragon Ball Z I would draw Dragon Ball Z characters my brother and I made OCs <laughs> and make comics about those and like back when my brother was younger he would draw with me yeah, I mean he doesn't do any drawing anymore but he would draw with me and like he created these characters that I would also draw and we'd make stories with them and yeah it was just I, I distinctly very distinctly remember all those drawings alright so there's no way you can just drop in that you have Dragon Ball Z original <laughs> characters without telling me yep. a little bit so what do you remember they were brothers so mm -hmm. big shock my brother and I because we were very close we made like original characters that were brothers and their last name was Ultimate, I believe. <laughs> I'm forgetting one of their names. One of them's names was Bruce. So it's Bruce Ultimate and then something else Ultimate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Looks basically like pretty much exactly like, what's that guy's name? Was it Broly or what? I, I don't remember the American names for all these characters. Just, yeah, with, that uh, one guy. Yeah, that one guy that was in that movie. But yeah, they look pretty much like that, but with different hair. They're just like hair swaps of each other. They looked exactly the same because we only know how to draw like one type of body, which is the Dragon Ball Z body. And if you ever see Dragon Ball Z, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody has the same body, even if you're a child. Everyone's made of footballs stitched together. Yeah, you have like 16 packs and giant pecs. <laughs> and a jaw that unhinges so you can yell really loud. Oh yeah, you gotta go Super Saiyan. Everybody went Super Saiyan. <laughs> I don't remember the stories that we told. I just remember like the really kind of stiff drawings that we would do. Everybody was always in like one or two different types of poses. We would draw kind of like the same comic over and over and over again mm -hmm. just because we, you know, as, as kids you just want to do something really, really well. Cool. You don't really care about, you know, what kind of story you're telling. It's, it was basically the same story every time. It's that Darwin Cook method. It's that repeat and repeat until it looks effortless. And then just tell everyone that it's effortless. <laughs> yep. And I'm sure that developed a lot of bad habits in my drawing that I had to like unlearn later. Well, because here's the thing, because I mean, I've seen, I've been following your Instagram for ages. And I remember I always really like your figure work. Like when you're, when I remember it was after you'd seen The Force Awakens, you were doing all the, the drawings of Chirrut. And I thought those were really cool. And from something that was only in theaters at the time, and you would have only seen it a mm -hmm. couple of times, you were producing a lot of the postures and movements that I remembered from watching the movie, and it was very evocative. So from drawing a waitress pad, did you go into mm -hmm. like actually studying art, or did it, was it just something that came to you? It was just something that I did on my own a lot, and my in particular would she would really encourage it because she liked that I was doing something that just was not destructive in any way my brother my older brother is he was like a demon child he would destroy everything <laughs> out of the house 
hyperactive. I'm sure if it was more kind of widely diagnosed back then, they would for sure diagnose him with some form of ADHD. He was kind of a terror. Like he just had infinite amounts of energy and he didn't know how to direct it. And so like when I came along and I was quiet and I sat down and drew all day and was very polite and very respectful of my parents and very respectful of my teachers. I'm sure my mom thought it was like an absolute godsend. So she encouraged me drawing, even though she kind of still did the usual type of, well, I don't want you to be a professional artist when you grow up. Uh, you should focus on your studies and, you know, get into a really good school and just, you know, do really well in school and you can just keep drawing as a hobby. She actually signed me up for like art classes and stuff like that. She was really, really supportive. She had me sign up when I was, I think, 10 or 11, where like adults were taking it. I just distinctly remember going to classroom that was at this adult learning center where they were teaching drawing on the weekends, figure drawing and, and still lifes and stuff like that. And I just distinctly remember being the only kid there. <laughs> Everybody else was an adult think that the instructor took kind of like one look at me and was just like, huh, that's weird. But then it just never came up again. <laughs> that is the only kind of like quote unquote formal art training I think I ever did as a kid. Other than that, it was just like art classes and at school and stuff like that. Yeah, I can just imagine it. It's like some new person joins the class and they walk in and they're like, oh yeah, wait, who's that? That's Randall. Don't ask. This is, oh, it's just a 10-year-old boy. Everyone else is like 30. <laughs> My parents are super cool about it until the, the point where like I got to college and I was just like, I'm going to be a professional artist. And they're just like, oh, well, damn it. <laughs> well, we tried. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, I went to an Ivy League school, which made them very happy. But then I decided to major in art and they were just like, God damn it. <laughs> so close. So close. You set it up and then no. Nah. <laughs> you can't stop me from being who I am, I guess. <laughs> Oh, a quick note too. When I like, sure. you, I just thought of this when you brought up uh, the for, the Force Awakens, uh -huh. or no? It was the Force Awakens. It was the Force Awakens. Or Rogue One. Rogue One. With, oh, Rogue uh, One. Sorry, yeah, that's my bad. Yeah. I remember having such like a, a visceral response to that movie because of Chariot as a character. Mm -hmm. There's just so much about Star Wars that I love. And the thing that I think I love the most is how much it borrows from the Eastern philosophy and the samurai kind of philosophy of the original trilogy. It's borrowed from samurai movies and all this martial arts philosophy that went into the samurai movies mm -hmm. completely is in the original trilogy where they talk about the force and you know the force is basically chi if you ever watch like a kung fu movie when mm -hmm. they're talking about chi they're talking about the force i've always thought that and for them to make a movie where they have the spokesperson for the force a monk even mm -hmm. and one that's skilled in the martial arts and have him be played by person i thought was the coolest thing in the world and i still even though i, I know a lot of my friends don't like rogue one and they, i mean there are problems with rogue one the, the, the one character i love the most in the entire star wars franchise is chirrut and that's why i did so much fan art of him and I, I just really felt like we had like made it in some way donnie yen was cast as a jedi like character for star wars donnie yen is he's from boston too like he he's oh, really? a uh, he's a boston boy yeah he's a boston boy just like me and he and i actually we have a shared lineage in training he trained with Boston Taekwondo and so did I. So we technically, we had the same masters. That's so cool. In some small way. I mean, he's trained in several different martial arts and his mom actually runs a school in Chinatown that I walked past every day when I was a kid. And she's, she, I mean, she's a very famous Kung Fu instructor in Boston. Everybody knows her. And so for Donnie in particular to be cast as Chirrut Imwe, it was just like a big crossover deal for me where like, you know, martial arts and kind of my nerd fandom things all kind of collided together. I just thought of that when you mentioned Sheridan and William. I just wanted to say that. That to me, I think is a very important part. And for that to kind of intersect with this other part of my life where I enjoy sci-fi and fantasy and all these other nerdy things. It's, it's just nice that there's some kind of overlap there. 
yeah, that, that's really great. Like, I'm just like, I know I should be asking questions and stuff, but I'm just sitting here listening. But, and yeah, for all the people <laughs> that had their problems with Rogue One, they can shut up because I really enjoyed that movie. <laughs> yeah, I watched it again and I liked yeah. it again. I, ex- I fully expected when I watched it again, it was like, maybe I will see all the faults with it that everybody's pointing out. But you know what? I still liked it. <laughs> so yeah. My one change yeah. watching it at home versus watching it at the movies was that it felt faster at home. It felt like when I got out of the movies, I felt like I'd been through an epic. And then watching it at mm-hmm. home, I'm like, wow, it really hums along, doesn't it? But yep. I knew, and sorry, everyone, spoilers for Rogue One. You've had time. Calm down. It's on Netflix. Go watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Go watch it. It's good. When Chirrut dies, that moment that happened, suddenly I knew the rest of the movie. Because the whole way through, those were the scenes I was hanging out for, was Chirrut and Bez just hanging out and being buddies. And my girlfriend, who is Japanese, was like loving those scenes too. And she leans over, she's like, they better not die. I'm like, oh, they won't. You know, (laughs) this is great. Like they're clearly setting them up. And like, they are the kind of the heart of this movie. Then when he died, I look over her and her eyes are as big as saucers and my eyes are huge. And I'm like, Oh, God. It's like you see the rest of the film laid out, and you see Bay yeah. see it happen, and he picks up his gun, and in my head I just hear like like a voice like my dad's going, well, time to go. And then he goes, and I'm just like, <gasps> like on the yeah. edge of my seat with my like fist crammed in my mouth, being like, oh, no. Oh, no, they're going to do it. Uh, oh, man. I watched that movie with my brother, too. I think it connected with us really hard because Asian representation in media in general is hard to come by. In American media, is hard to come by. But for it to kind of like appear in this way where it is very Asian, mm-hmm. it's very refreshing, but also kind of just the way it was depicted. I think that those two are the most interesting characters in the entire movie. Yeah, totally. Their dynamic is so fascinating. And my brother and I immediately, after we watched it, was, we immediately drew parallels kind of between the way that their brotherhood is and the way that our brotherhood is. Aww. You know, he is kind of the more pragmatic one that is a little bit more skeptical of certain aspects of the things that I teach as a, as a martial arts instructor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very much a believer in kind of like what I teach is it has, has true meaning and things like that. And so we had a really great discussion after that movie. At that moment, the moment that you're talking about where Chirrut dies and you kind of realize the fate of Rogue One, there's this moment where it hits you where it's like, oh, this is that type of movie. None yeah. of these people are going to make it. It's a story about sacrifice. It's not a story where, you know, the good guys all live at the end. Oh, yeah. And you're right, that turn is like, it's one of those things where, I mean, people get really upset about spoilers or trailers giving you too much. And in Mm -hmm. this fairly media-saturated time in which we're living, it's very easy to see the scope of a film and to occasionally get that genuine surprise of, Mm -hmm. and not just a surprise of, oh, they did something interesting, but get an emotive surprise of, oh, no, this is going to happen and feel that apprehension. It's a rare thing. It's something you don't always get in films at the moment. Through all the people that hate Rogue One, the more I talk about it, the more I like it. Yeah, yeah. It's a fantasy movie. It's a war movie. And then during the parts where Chirrut is in it, it is totally a martial arts movie. It is as martial arts as it gets. They talk about the force. They talk about how training one's mind and body kind of connects with the universe. That is completely a martial arts movie. (laughs) Well, speaking of martial arts movies, you wanted to talk about some of the martial arts films of your childhood from Jackie Chan, among others. But I think one that I want to start with is we got to talk about Drunken Master. So what was your oh, experience yeah. with Drunken Master? Before we start, oh. just clarify. We're talking about original Drunken Master, yes? Yeah, even though the second one is also amazing. 
But the first one is the one that kind of, I don't know if it opened my eyes, but it really, it definitely stuck with me for a long time. I watched it when I was a kid. It still sticks with me today. It's on Netflix, I believe. I I still watch it. You can also get a Blu-ray of it for about 12 bucks, which I did, and it's totally worth it. And for the people who have never really done like a deep dive into the Jackie Chan movies, his stuff in the 80s and 90s, I think is absolutely unparalleled in any kind of you see today or even before that. We'll say like Bruce Lee is the greatest martial arts action star of all time because he, he kind of open the doors for a lot of people and that may or may not be true but i think just like in terms of like quality of movies and just the breadth of movies jackie chan is tops like he just has so many classics and when he's in his prime like during drunken master it is a thing to behold like there's nothing else like it there was um, a moment when i was a kid briefly entertained the thought of becoming a drunk like <laughs> drinking a lot of <laughs> drinking a lot of rice wine so I could be a better fighter. <laughs> well, I suppose that's one way. That's one way to get to be a drunken master is to be a master and then get drunk. QED. It stands well, to got, reason. I got the master part down. I don't drink though, so maybe <laughs> maybe I should. You can unlock your potential. I know this will come up later for the cocktail hour, but when you ask me, like, oh, is there is there anything that you drink, or you know, is there any kind of theme you wanted to go with for me to make your signature cocktail? And I said I don't drink, but we're gonna talk about drunken master, so maybe. <laughs> and I'll see because we can get sake around here but the only real Chinese rice wine that we can get is for cooking and I have tried once to see what that tasted like and that was bad oh boy oh boy <laughs> that was real bad yeah it's funny that there's like this whole like I think one of the greatest martial arts movies of all time Drunken Master is like it's centered around drinking because drinking is not really a thing amongst Chinese folks like the, the Chinese culture that's not our vice not really a part of our culture we're more like gamblers that's like kind of like the vice that gets to us but like mm. drinking is not a huge thing so you're not i don't know if you're gonna find a whole lot of different drinks that are centered around chinese rice wine i'm gonna check it out i may have to fall back and just use sake but we'll see how we go so coming back to drunken master though i'm gonna preface this by saying that i was a jackie chan neophyte for a long time mm-hmm. because it was the late 90s and unless you knew what to look for we had lots of shaw brothers kung fu movies Like, you know, Mm -hmm. I'd seen the five deadly venoms, but I had never seen anything with Jackie Chan in it. And then there was a a street closed in Vancouver in Gastown, and they had hovercraft in the middle of it. And I'm like, oh, what's happening? Oh, they're filming this movie, this Rumble in the Bronx movie. And I'm like, I've never heard of this. What is it? And so seeing Rumble in the Bronx and being like, oh, it's Jackie Chan. He's legendary. And seeing it then, I didn't quite get it at first because I was used to Western martial arts movies where there was a lot of straight on one-to-one fighting or occasionally one versus mm-hmm. a group. Seeing Jackie Chan do his comedy thing where he's, you know, someone who runs past a fridge and whips out the bottom door and hits someone in the stomach and then whips the freezer door out and hits him in the head. And it's like, mm-hmm. I always thought of, it's a great little comedy beat that one, two, very fast. Yeah. Like not getting it at first, but what I should have done, like with the benefit of hindsight, is where I was at the time, I should have watched Drunken Master because Drunken Master is magical. I swear. Like, there are whole bits of this movie where they're just like, let's just watch Jackie Chan do forms. Cool? Yeah. Let's narrate over it while he does forms on a clifftop and just looks amazing. Yeah. And that's the thing about Jackie Chan films that I think separates him from a lot of other martial arts movie stars is that he is a martial arts that abhors violence. His action sequences very rarely are about violence. Rumble in the Bronx, I think, is an exception because of the kind of American influence. They wanted that movie to be big in America, mm-hmm. and they knew that Americans respond very well to violence. So that they, they added a lot more 
kind of beat them up fight scenes, straight fight scenes, and a lot of cracking skulls and that type of stuff in that movie. But for the most part, his entire filmography is mostly just about the action sequences. He's more kind of concerned with storytelling than he is about just straight violence, which is, for me as a kid, was really, uh, it was a lot more fun to watch to fight and I did like you know the kind of more martial aspects of martial arts when I was training I was really interested in seeing how we could appeal to more people like I've always kind of wanted more people to be doing martial arts I wanted my friends to do martial arts I wanted my parents to do martial arts I want everybody to do martial arts because I thought it was such a wonderful thing outside of just the fighting aspects of it Jackie Chan was kind of like a convinced people that martial arts was cool outside of just being able to punch and kick things really hard it's like you said when you're talking about you know Bruce Lee being this incredible martial artist but Bruce Lee's movies are all like he is always the stone cold badass you don't get to see him be funny you don't get to see him crack jokes or do physical comedy the way that you will with Jackie Chan. It's a different sort of movie. I love Bruce Lee. I mean, I'm staring at a poster of Bruce Lee right now that's hanging right above my TV. Of course. <laughs> I love Bruce Lee, but by myself, especially when it comes to like people quoting Bruce Lee, I find myself contradicting him a lot. His philosophy, his idea of what martial arts is supposed to be, a lot of it's centered around violence and a lot of it's centered around self-defense and fighting. Well, that's all well and good. That's all part of martial arts. That's not all there is to it. I think he knew that, but a lot of the times what, what he's quoted as saying is a lot of his more kind of practical, if you wanted to say, like kind of like a applicable to self-defense quotes that people like to pull from his many writings and, and talks about martial arts. Uh, and his movies kind of reflect that. His movies are American. They wanted action sequences. They wanted fighting. They wanted killing. And they, that's what he gave them. Bruce Lee's, his works are all kind of, like you said, he plays Bruce Lee in every movie. Yeah. Jackie Chan plays Jackie Chan in a lot of his movies, but Jackie Chan is not always a stone cold badass. Jackie Chan is funny. Jackie Chan is vulnerable. Jackie Chan is an everyman in the way that Bruce Lee isn't. There's just something more appealing to a kid in seeing a guy that looks like your dad <laughs> as opposed to someone that looks like Bruce Lee. Yeah, and, and I, th- I definitely think you're right. And there's also, again, like you said, there's a vulnerability. There's an openness to a lot of Jackie Chan's characters. He's doing it because it's the right thing to do in that moment. It's not a matter of, I will do it because I need to defeat this person. Right. It's making decisions, and that's also why the most dangerous thing on the planet is Jackie Chan in a ladder factory holding a baby. (laughs) Yeah. He's more influenced by, you know, Buster Keaton and the Three Stooges, you know, Bruce Lee and Arnold Schwarzenegger. You were talking about Drunken Master. That movie, uh, talk about the first movie and, you know, specify that they're talking about the first movie, not about the Drunken Master that was only kind of promoted in in America Mm -hmm. as being the only Drunken Master. But both movies are solid. They're both very, very good. And the second one has that final fight scene with Ken Lo, his bodyguard. I distinctly remember that scene being very influential to me, practitioner, because the choreography in that is so tight and so kinetic. I started martial arts. I started Taekwondo. I wanted to kind of like replicate how kinetic that felt. It doesn't surprise me now looking back at it as as someone that's been doing martial arts his entire life. Looking back at it now, they wanted Ken Lo who's uh, Jackie Chan's opponent in that final fight scene, to have more of a Taekwondo style. It speaks to me just for me. Like, it, it confirms my belief that like you know that scene was influential to me as a kid because the style that I am most proficient in is Taekwondo. 
And I started to get into that after watching that movie. And now that I've gone back and watched that movie, I, you know, I'm looking at behind the scenes stuff. They're just like, yeah, they want Ken Lo to have more of a Taekwondo style. It's really nice to see that, like, you know, life can be explained in such simple terms. <laughs> Ken Lo actually was a, I think he was, he was Jackie Chan's bodyguard that they trained just so that they could do that fight scene. They had an actual Taekwondo master be his scene partner in that. But then when he couldn't do it, they got Chan's bodyguard to, to type of kicking style. And that's kind of how that scene came together. And I just think, like, if you haven't seen that fight scene, I urge people to just, like, find it on YouTube or however. And just, like, just watch that fight scene, how it's choreographed, and see how different that is in, ter- in terms of choreography than it is with any other American arts film. Jackie Chan films have this quality about them where everything is choreographed and practiced, and there's a million takes done to make sure it goes absolutely perfectly. Many scenes are done in one take because Jackie Chan has people there all day just to do one fight scene. The level of perfection that Jackie Chan movies, it's unparalleled. You won't see anything like that now, and it's for good reason you don't see anything like that now because it just, it costs so much money to make a movie like that and so much time and effort to do something like that and so much expertise. And now that I'm like a professional actor and stuntman and I've seen what it takes to make a film and what it takes to make a movie, I appreciate it even more because it'll take us a 12-hour, 14-hour shoot day to shoot one scene. I mean, that's just a talking scene. For (laughs) it to be a fight scene, for you to choreograph all that and have it go exactly right, no mistakes, and achieve the level of perfection that Jackie Chan demands, I mean, that's just, that's incredible. And then you see stuff like, you know, he's doing it with sometimes with like a dozen extras behind him, plus people who are fighting, plus, you know, props and things that have to fall in a certain way for like actual like setup shots. And yeah. it's like that all of that has to go just right. And if something goes wrong and or the beam falls the wrong way or, you know, something doesn't quite seat properly and it's like, oh, start it up, set it up, do it again. He's insane. Like there, <laughs> there's no other way of explaining it. I cannot emphasize how difficult even one aspect of those scenes are, but for him to demand that it all comes together all in one is insane. I had a conversation with my brother just the other day. You know, I'm, I'm doing stunts now and I'm doing stunts for movies and TVs and there's some, some of them are, are big stunts, some of them are little stunts. 90% of the time, the, the type of stunts I'm doing are very kind of basic stuff, just like falling on the ground from just a standing position, which is very safe, or, you know, firing a, an actual like weapon, kind of like something remotely dangerous is considered a stunt. Anything that you wouldn't want the star of your movie doing is a stunt. The most of the stunts that I'm doing is, is stuff like that. It's nothing like, like Project A, where he's jumping off of a building <laughs> onto an awning and then bouncing off the awning and onto the street, like jumping off a two-story building. And I was talking to my brother about that particular scene in Project A, where Jackie Chan leaps from a building. The idea is for him to hit the awning and onto the street, onto his back. The take that they actually used in that movie is him he didn't like the first two takes that he did where he legit bounces off the awning, falls on the ground from a two-story building. And he's like, no, I did not like that take. I'm going to do it again, <laughs> which is insane of itself. But then he doesn't like the second one either. So he does it the third time. And on the third time, which is the take they used for the movie because they couldn't do it anymore, he falls through the awning <laughs> straight into the street. And they were just like, Jackie, we literally can't do any more takes because your body is broken and the awning is broken. We can't do any more takes than that. That's the one we have to use. <laughs> Describing that to my brother. Yeah. And he was just like, well, you shouldn't do dangerous stunts like that. I'm like, I couldn't if I wanted to. <laughs> Would allow that. 
this is the most bananas behavior. Again, if you haven't seen Jackie Chan in his prime, go back and watch it. He almost died so you could be entertained by these movies. You need to go watch them. Even with the later stuff like Rumble in the Bronx, it's like there's a chunk of that movie where he's wearing a cast on his foot that they have spray painted to look like a shoe. Because yeah. he broke his foot. It's yeah. just like, oh, it's one of those things. Okay, it's, it's an old example where it's like, oh, this is my father's ship, except we replaced the mast and the boards and the deck and the the prow oh and we fixed up that thing and it's all new rope and the sails are new but you know it's it's basically my father's ship that's how jackie chan is with his entire body yeah yeah he has a hole in his head so he jumped out of a helicopter onto into a tree he missed the tree like <laughs> <laughs> that's how he got a hole in his head he still has a hole in his head he's like a 70 year old man with a hole in his head because he jumped out of a helicopter into a tree oh my god that's a real stunt that he decided to do himself <laughs> and are you not entertained he tells the story of that of doing that stunt and it's just the most remarkable thing because the first thing he says after falling on his head and breaking his skull open is did you get that take <laughs> consummate professional jackie chan god yeah go watch those movies you need to watch those movies he couldn't have almost died 20 different times for nothing <laughs> all right so if someone were to go back and take a look at one particular Jackie Chan movie that you think is like this kind of crystal gem that has the exact kind of perfect mix of things, which one would it be, in your opinion? Oh, boy. That second Drunken Mass is real good. I really like Project A, even though the story itself is just kind of like this silly pirate movie. Sequences in that make it such an extraordinary movie because he's working with his two training brothers mm -hmm. uh, in Sammo Hung and Yoon Byu. Sammo Hung's great. Yeah, I was a chubby kid when I was growing up. So like Sammo Hung was just, he was like an aspirational figure. He's a big chubby guy that can move really well. Whenever Jackie Chan works with his brothers, it's magic because they've been training together for so long. They've both had that kind of very uh, intense Chinese opera training where they take no excuses, everything has to be perfect. And they have that chemistry of being together for their entire lives. So whenever they work together, it's just absolute magic. And Project A is one of a few movies where all three of them are the stars of it. And it comes together really well. And even Drunken Master, one of the, the villains that he fights is the oldest of his training brothers, uh, Yun Hua, who a lot of people don't realize is an incredibly experienced martial artist. He's the uh, the thin guy in that movie that has a mustache and, and uh, oh. horn rim glasses. Yeah, no he's, he is of the brothers that uh, Jackie trained with. I think they called him the Seven Tigers or something like that. They all trained in the same Chinese opera school since they were children. Actually, the youngest of the seven. He's by far the most successful because he has that kind of that natural charisma about him. He became the most successful. He's also, I think, the best looking of them. But Yun Hua is the oldest. So he's kind of like big brother to everybody. He's tremendous in the scenes that he has with Jackie and Drunken Master 2. That, I think, is if you had to watch just one, I would choose Drunken Master 2. But if you could kind of expand that, I'd, I'd check out the ones that have Yun Bu and Sammo Hong in them as well. Excellent. And I may actually cut the recording short just because I have a baby in the other room that is a little bit unhappy, so I'm going to jump out for that. But oh, I'm man. definitely going to have you back on the show, and we are going to talk some more best of the best. Oh, my God. <laughs> I have so much more to talk about. You have no idea, Lucas. You got to tie in that, that, that Coach Kuzo. No. <laughs> oh, yes. I'll save I, it for the recording. As, as, Eric, as Eric Roberts flips out, he's going, Coach, Coach, he's going to kill him. No. Oh. <laughs> no, I, I could go. I could honestly go on, and we would have no listeners. But that's fine. <laughs>
I've only just begun. I've happily come back on and talk about whatever you want to talk about. All right, Randall. So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? I'm on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, mostly Instagram nowadays, at Randall Trang. That's R-A-N-D-A-L-L, two L's, T-R-A-N-G. And yeah, you can find me everywhere at Randall Trang. And your comics? My comics, Roller Girl and the Flying Psychic. Those are available on my website, randalltrang.com. And I do release uh, journal comics, which is a autobiographical webcomic. Uh, that you can read on randalltrang.com. It's actually posted on my Instagram whenever I do update it. That's cross-posted onto to Tumblr. It's probably linked to on my Twitter as well. But yeah, come uh, come follow me on, on Instagram and Twitter. I'll talk to you. I'll say hi. All right, Randall. Thanks so much for coming on. This has been a long time in the making, but I'm very glad we got to do it. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And discipline, no giving up, no giving in. We're match fit, we're here to win. For those who don't know, but I'm filming, filming information, information with a real South here, no imitation. But all around the world, no immigration, and we get it in without an invitation. Sound travels in the ground shakes, and our society has got us on the wild chase. And then we'll be back in 60 seconds with the loud bass. We're moving at our pace. Thank you very much to Randall Trang for his time, and thank you to all of you for persevering with those dropouts. For Randall's signature cocktail, he did mention specifically that he did not drink, but he wanted me to make a cocktail based around rice wine, which I took as an interesting challenge. As we discussed on the show, the majority of Chinese rice wine that you find around Sydney is going to be cooking wine, and it's awful, but you can get a lot of Korean rice wines or soju rice spirits or sake around the place pretty easily. And, with Randall's blessing, considering that when he used to drink, he used to have great fun going out and drinking soju, I was going to pick up some soju today and come up with a cocktail to knock his socks off. However, as you can hear from my voice, and anyone who looked at my Twitter today will realize, both Kimiko and I were struck down with a horrible cold today. So rather than being at work, where I knew there was a shop nearby that sold soju, I instead went to my local Dan Murphy's to find they were completely out of soju, completely out of rice wine, but they did have sake. So cue some frantic recalculations, I present the aspirational drunk. In a beaker with ice, combine three quarters of an ounce of vodka, three quarters of an ounce of botanical gin, one and a half ounces of junmai sake, a quarter of an ounce of extra dry vermouth, a few drops of aged Japanese whiskey, and a few drops of maraschino liqueur. If you want to get technical, we're talking like two and a half milliliters. Don't overdo it. Stir everything together until chilled and combined, Strain into a cocktail glass and garnish with a very thin slice of cucumber. Some fighters are like musical glasses. To produce their finest tones, you must keep them wet. Enjoy! The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. 
You can follow the show on Twitter at The Math of You, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat, although there aren't a lot of pictures right now because, like I said, I'm very sick. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month, or you can pledge as much as you want. You can throw out like a hundred bucks. That would be great. I would buy a large bottle of cough medicine. Patrons get early access to episodes, physical mail, and I would just really appreciate it. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can head to iTunes in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. Or you can write a review, and I'll even read it out. Won't that be nice? And guys, I say this review one every single week, and honestly, I've got like three. Ever. So I would really love it if you guys went and did some reviewing and some rating. And let me know when you do, because I like to hear that kind of stuff. If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used, going all the way back to episode one. That's more than ten hours of music, including this one. It's Ming Ming Bye Bye Wo Xin by Sarah Chen, and you guessed it, the man himself, Jackie Chan. Both this and the intro song, which was Wong Fei Hong's theme, were specifically chosen by Randall, and both have quietly gotten stuck in my head for most of the week. I update the playlist every Wednesday as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe to get that new music in your ears. Next week, I'll be talking to writer and podcaster Juliet Khan about the Teen Titans. Join me, won't you? So, hey, how are you? I'm, I'm doing really well. XT, Brooklyn. Brooklyn 3. Yeah, I took my wife to WWE, a wrestling event before. She saw Chikara live, and we were in a live wrestling experience. Yeah, she really enjoyed herself. It was really nice. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm lucky that my girlfriend, who had never really watched wrestling, said yes when we went, because we went to Japan, and uh, she's Japanese. And so she speaks Japanese, and so I had to say, like, look, please, oh, please, could you go up there and ask if they sell tickets to the Dragon Gate show that I know is happening this weekend? And the answer was mm. luckily yes. So we got to be fourth row for Dragon Gate at the Krakowin Hall, which was amazing. Oh, that sounds amazing. That's like my, that's like bucket list thing is to go to Japan and watch wrestling in Japan. It's my favorite. It's so great though, because here's the thing. It's like, it's it's always a dry event. So nobody's rowdy. And mm-hmm. you look around and at least for Dragon Gate, the audience was like 70% women and kids. Nice. And everyone was dressed like for a nice night out. And it was just really like, yeah, everyone cheered the good guys and booed the bad guys and called out for their favorites and went, oh wow, for the big moves. And it's just like, and plus because I didn't speak the language, and because I wasn't familiar with the Federation and didn't know the stories going in, it was basically like watching opera where people get kicked in the head really hard. Yeah, that sounds like my deal. Like, I don't think I could ever go back to 10 chance, and <laughs> which is what happens at WWE shows. Yeah, it's one of those things. And recently, I've started going to PWA shows. They're an Australian federation. Ooh. And I'd never really paid them much attention because they're way out in the middle of nowhere. They're in like Kasula, which means it's like an hour's drive. And I don't mm. drive, so it would be like two hours on public transport. They recently did one in Paddington, which is in the city. And Will Ospreay came out. And I'm like, okay, 
you know, sure, just had a baby, and my social life has gone down the toilet, but you know what, I need to go to this. I kind of need to go. <laughs> and so we went, and I swear, it was Robbie Eagles, who was a, a local guy, who we had seen at House of Hardcore, and it was like, he's just this, you know, good-looking young guy who does flips and wears two bandanas, one around his neck, one around his head. And we were like, oh, you know, that'd be nice, but oh my god, this match... This was crazy over the top, and like they came down like a foot from me. And mm-hmm. it's also, I suppose, a bit of that Kara vibe where it's like it's a small room, and so everything seems bigger and like in your face. And it was fantastic. Luckily, they've released it for free on YouTube, so I've been like spooking the hell out of that. Like, there's something about that in the environment where you're like in this tiny hall. They actually had a uh, progress show here in New York. Oh, yeah. Just a couple weeks ago, it was like down the street from me. Mm-hmm. They had Pete Dunn. Oh, nice. Yeah, he was there defending the UK championship against Jack Galler. Oh, wow. Yeah. To, for them to have like a WWE match in this tiny little hall down the street from me. And it was like typical kind of indie-rific crap where it's just like it got so hot in there mm-hmm. that someone passed out. Oh, no. They violated the fire code. They had way too many people inside that building. It was just like, it's, it's funny, just like this is a WWE match with WWE wrestlers. This place where, you know, normally the WWE would never be caught dead being associated with. That's the experience is like, it's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I know that with the NXT Brooklyn thing, or I know because I was watching Twitter, that is Adam Cole's back. Yep. It was funny because I had read about Adam Cole. The early reports was that he signed with NXT and WWE. She actually knows who Adam Cole is because she watched one of the Wrestle Kingdoms with me. And oh, yeah. she just remembers like his very distinctive like Tron that says, Adam Cole, baby. <laughs> and she, I just stuck in her mind. It's like, yeah, there might be a chance that like there'll be like a surprise appearance by this guy named Adam Cole. Do you remember when you watched Japanese wrestling with me and there was that, that American wrestler that like uh, had that charm that said, Adam Cole, baby. She's like, oh yeah, I remember, baby. Guy. Yeah, baby. <laughs> It's really funny, just like, I've been watching wrestling for so long now that I kind of know, like, regular person that doesn't watch wrestling only would identify with. Like, they're not going to remember, you know, Adam Cole's finisher or, like, his work rate or whatever, but they'll remember, like, his Tron. <laughs> you know, this is, like, little things that I can latch onto that can explain to a normal person. Like, oh, yeah, it's this guy, if you remember watching it. Yeah, my, my girlfriend did the same because I was watching, because for a while I'd go over to her house and she had cable and I didn't. So we'd watch NXT, and sometimes we I'd be over there when Raw or SmackDown was on. She got stuck on Bo Dallas because she thought it was really cute <laughs> that he would go, you just got to believe. And, and so she would do it in that voice. And I'm like, you know, he's not actually doing that anymore. He hasn't done that for a while. She's like, no, but I liked it. I remember him. Yeah. And he beat El Torito and did a victory lap in slow-mo and then knocked El Torito over on the way around. Oh, God, that was great. See, like, I still remember that. Yeah, about yeah. It's just one of those things where it's like that's a moment that you can send to someone who's not a wrestler and be like, okay, this, see this little chicken shit and how you know he thinks he's a good guy, but he's really a piece of shit. Yep. It's like, yeah, that translates. It's fun too, like showing people wrestling and when they get really excited about it. Like Nora, my wife, she loves everything. Like she's just a very positive person. She wasn't caught up on all of NXT. She had watched NXT with me and like, um, you know, Sami Zayn was down there during kind of like, I guess the stage of NXT where it was getting really, really popular. Around, around Fatal 4-Way that yeah and she knew all those characters she knows she even like extended that to like she, she knows Finn Balor she knows Samoa Joe she knows all those people but she hadn't watched it recently but wrestling she kind of understands the kind of storytelling aspect of it and she went in there only knowing I think a couple of the wrestlers she knew Asuka and she knew Bobby Roode because of the whole glorious, the glorious entrance thing, yeah. and she yeah she loves that entrance so she was really excited just to, to go and watch that entrance 
Mm-hmm. When we went, she really was just kind of like, I hope I like it, even though I knew that she kind of just likes everything. Mm-hmm. Like she'll, she'll find something to love. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really exciting to just introduce someone came out of it, not just like talking about the things that she knew she was gonna like, like Bobby Roode's entrance, or you know Shinsuke Nakamura appeared in the crowd, and she loves him, but like she was really, really kind of like excited to talk about Oscar versus Ember. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was really she was talking about the matches and spots. In the match, and kind of just like the story it told, and like she got deep into it. It wasn't just you know kind of the, the superficial things that mm-hmm. you know every other new fan would remember. She really got into the storytelling aspect of it, which means that I think that the wrestlers today helps uh, really well. It's something that I've introduced a few people to wrestling, and especially modern wrestling. We're at such a time where it's such a, an easy thing to include people, especially with stuff like NXT, where the work rate's so good, and it's rare that you get like a dud match. And even if it's not like all the way to its potential, like there's a level of good that's kind of the default now that makes it really right. easy. Although, um, uh, you know, um, Ali Stock? I don't. Okay. Well, she does Xena Warrior business with Kristen. And, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And she's a huge weeaboo. <laughs> and so I got her into wrestling by telling her that Kenny Omega is like an anime villain. And she's mm-hmm. like, tell me more about this anime villain wrestler. And I was just like sending her <laughs> gifts of like when he had the microphone and was narrating the match as he was having it and was saying things like, ah, you cannot escape. Give me your leg, you piece of garbage. Look, and he, and he picks up this guy's <laughs> leg and the other guy's hopping like in that ready for insecurity position. And the whole time he's talking, mm-hmm. he's like, see, I have your leg. There is nothing you can do. There is no way for you to defeat me. What can you possibly? And the other guy goes for the insecurity and Kenny ducks. And the guy face plants and he holds him. He's like, ah, ha, ha, I am not stupid. <laughs> and it's genius. I love it. <laughs> I eventually sent her the uh, Kenny Omega Okada match. And she watched the whole thing. And I was at lunch oh, when it happened. Yeah. And so the phone was in my pocket. And so I opened up my Twitter. Like I was like paying the bill. Glanced at my Twitter. And there were like 12 notifications. Like, oh my god. what the, He just flipped out of the ring. My poor flippy boy. Oh no. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's amazing. There's just no better time than right now to be a wrestling fan, mm-hmm. and it's not even close. Like I don't think like Attitude Era '90s doesn't matter. Like there's no era that kind of measures up to what wrestling is now. Mm-hmm. When we were at Sims's wedding, Sims and Aiden, after their wedding, they had over at their apartment to watch. Uh, I forget what pay per view it was, but it was one of the WWE pay per views that weekend. So we wound up like having kind of like a, a watch party over at their apartment the day after they got married. I, I just distinctly remember Jay Edden being there, and he was very much like a wrestling fan. But there were a bunch of people there that were not wrestling fans, but immediately got into it when Jay's reaction to Fashion Police versus the Usos. <laughs> yeah. And then they had that spot where Tyler Breeze comes out dressed like a janitor. <laughs> They're doing spots with Tyler Breeze as a janitor. There's a spot where one of the Usos goes up for the Superfly Splash. Tyler Breeze just rolls slowly towards the opposite corner. So the Uso gets down from that turnbuckle, goes up for the splash again, and then totally rolling away from that corner again. <laughs> it goes on for like three minutes, and it's a, a total, total Joe comedy spot, but it got everybody in the room into it. A bunch of people there that were not just not wrestling fans, but were really kind of anti-wrestling, mm-hmm. and it won over a whole bunch of people. There's something for everyone. Yeah, that's that good Colt Cabana stuff, where it's like, you know, he gets rolled into the ring and just keeps rolling over to the other side. <laughs> and it goes, you know, the guy rolls around and put him back in, and he rolls back in and across the other side. Yeah. It's just clowning. I love it. So, so funny. 